Hi, my name's Andy, and I look at new ways that we can try to understand and empathize with the natural environment, and do this by building digital technology in the wild. And I call this idea digital naturalism. The basic concept is to push the sites of education, making, and technology outside of the confines of our normal human-centric environments, like labs or classrooms or maker spaces. And the goal is to discover the intricacies of the world all around us by creating and designing while immersed entirely within these natural contexts. For example, I design and lead educational workshops that I call hiking hacks, which involve biologists, engineers, artists, and documentarians from a wide variety of ages and backgrounds. We hike together multiple days into isolated wilderness while carrying all of our tools and everything that we're going to need. There, we deploy our own portable studios for exploring physical computing and nature in tandem. Our diverse crew then lives there, immersed in the wild, exploring and building new ways to probe and interact with the environment. I've gotten to lead several expeditions like this with amazing collaborators from around the world in places such as the U.S., Panama, Madagascar, and even branching out to marine projects such as we built this floating art and science makerspace from the ground up to monitor Philippines' oceans. It's these experiences which helped form my dream about the future of education, where exploration, discovery, experimentation, and outreach are all situated together in the context of our own curiosities. Working in nature cuts us off from a lot of basic human infrastructure, but we gain continuous feedback and inspiration from the natural environment in which we're immersed. Working in traditional facilities, on the other hand, lets us access all these unprecedented new technologies for interpreting data and learning about the world, but it also creates intellectual echo chambers and seals off our experience from natural phenomena. So I think we can have the best of both worlds. My goal for the future is to cut our technology's chains that limit the richness with which we can explore the world. I want to reinvent infrastructure to get computers into the wild and have mobile or even wearable maker studios that are always with us everywhere. So these are the big research goals that I'm going to be pursuing for the rest of my life. I'll be chasing and sharing these ideas in many different formats from academic discussions, workshops, comic books, music videos, engineering designs, and basically any other way that can make these concepts fun and accessible to as many different types of people as I can around the world. And I'm always looking to connect with people who do have these similar interests and ideas that span art, science, and technology with the goal of helping us all learn and care more about this fascinating natural world around us before it's destroyed. So hit me up and maybe we can plan some great adventures together. Thanks. This is Journeys in Podcasting, and we are currently recording from Gamboa, Panama, and today we'll be talking to Andrew Quitmeyer, and it's Dina Lab. so if you could just kind of introduce yourself. Cool. Hi, yeah, I'm Andy Quitmeyer. I really like nature and playing around with animals. I like trying to make new, strange tools that let us interact with non-humans in new kinds of ways. From my experience, I found one of the best and most like engaging ways to deal with natural environments and non-human creatures and technology is to actually try to move the technological laboratories to the sites of exploration. 
So, in short, trying to put electronics laboratories in jungles or on islands and things like that. Yeah, I remember uh, from your ITP workshop from a couple of years ago, one of the things that you talked about and showed us slides of was these mobile labs that you would move out into the jungle and you would literally put up desk space, Arduino workshops. Mm -hmm. How does that work and and, what are you working on out here with that? A lot of those, those were called hiking hacks, where we tried to just basically like put an electronics workshop in our backpack and then just go really as deep into biologists' field work as we could, join them on some kind of biological expedition for collecting ants or whatever they were up to in a very remote place and set up these mobile workspaces where we could design and create inspired by everything directly around us. And that was all started here when I was doing my PhD studying a lot of the scientists around the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, mm-hmm. which is based right here in Gamboa. That really captivated me with how this biological field research is done and all the potential opportunity that is there for doing cool stuff with very simple new types of interactive technology. This lab that we have here now is the latest incarnation of this. I had a weird TV show for a little bit that didn't make any sense, and I was kind of tricked into it by these very dumb and lying uh, Hollywood producers, but it was okay. And then I was a professor for a little bit. It was really an awful experience just in how the admin was run and how... We actually got punished for, I was actually told that we would be punished if our student reviews were actually too high for a class because we were spending too much time thinking about how to teach our students instead of just publishing papers. I quit that job and just kind of went straight to the dream of making our own technology, science, and art field station. So the traditional model is that the scientist goes out, collects data, maybe puts sensors out into like a rainforest area, mm-hmm. and then comes back to a lab and crunches that data in a very more lab sterile environment. This embodied cognition of bringing scientists out to actually create their labs right there on the jungle floor, have you noticed any different effect or how they behave or interact with the data or does that make sense? Totally. Oh yeah. I mean, passing car. I mean, the very first thing that you notice when you start actually developing in context of what you're researching or studying or curious about is everything moves faster. So like you were saying, the standard model for a lot of these scientists tends to be they have a home institution, generally in probably a temperate environment in the Northern Hemisphere in probably the US or Europe. And they have laboratory there. Every year they'll probably have a field season. They go out and usually they tend to see the field season as like collecting. They just collect data or you know literally grab specimens or um, deploy sensors and then have them all this data come back and then they spend the whole next year just crunching this data. But instead, we want them to do it all at once. And the other thing you notice is once you bring any kind of technology out to an uncontrolled environment like, you know, a jungle here, your tech's going to break. Um, it's just going to, it's not going to work. <laughs> yep. Things are you're, that you didn't anticipate are going to happen and stuff's going to be different. And so, I mean, one of our basic services of just being nearby is like there's been countless scientists who are just like, hey, do you have a soldering iron? I like, you know, dropped this when I was crossing a river and I just need these two metal parts to touch it. Again, and then it'll work and it'll save me eight months you know yeah 
So a lot of them fly down. I know summertime surge here. There's 150-something researchers that come down to this mm-hmm. area, where normally it's about 40 or 50, I think, in the area. And what I'm hearing is that you're giving them this, this opportunity to tinker with their research, to make it more of a playful maker um, experience, but also uh, that's in the physical capture of the data, but also in do you see them changing their actual research technique, that when they get in, they notice something different about the environment that might change the kind of data they want to capture? Does that... Does yeah, that- fixing your gear or like uh, tweaking your like you know electronic instrument a little bit that's kind of our gateway drug to getting these scientists a little bit weirder um, where they're like oh yeah you can fix this but like also what have you put on this weird smell sensor too and then like you know suddenly they start adding like all these different elements to their devices because of how easy it is and how how modular most of this kind of like DIY open source kind of tech is a lot of the scientists are used to like, oh, I'm going to do an experiment. I need to study, you know, light and this position. I'm going to get this light meter for $3,000 from this one company versus like, you know, now we can make a light meter and we can also put on a gas sensor and we can also put a vibration sensor on it too at the same time. And then, oh, and this thing isn't just static and placed on the ground and logging data, but actually you can build it into your clothes and, you know, maybe you can feel the gradient of uh, moisture while you go up pipeline road one of the main research areas around here and you can viscerally feel this and you know let it know let it trigger things with you and where you can start uh, getting a little bit more of your intuition crunching on this rather than just like six months later being like oh I'm looking at this data I guess that seems about what I was thinking you lose so much once you physically detach from this place Mm -hmm. that you lose your innate ability as a human to make connections from really broad swaths of rich information that's bombarding you constantly. I remember from your um, documentation that you were showing us these creative empathy projects where, let's say a scientist is studying ants and you help them make and create a simulation where they have to experience the sensory uh, range of an ant, for example. Uh, Are you still working on that kind of uh, thing here as well? Yeah, very much so. We're trying to really run the gamut between like doing consulting work and building like high precision scientific tools to building devices for like understanding and kind of putting yourself into what they call like the umwelt, um, the sensory world of these living creatures. So trying to design things like, you know, a very common one is probably like uh, bat sensors um, where they take the ultrasonic range and, you know, you can uh, lower it down to where you can hear. Um, But then doing that with all kinds of other things. How do you, uh, we made the stereo smelling device where uh, you could try to smell with two sensory organs along a directional path and we one of our standard workshops is a firefly workshop because you know if you're doing arduino your hello world your beginning project is always make a light blink Mm -hmm. um we're like well you know while we're out here in the jungle we can tie this directly with behaviors of animals um there's these amazing fireflies here they even have the brightest firefly in the world um in these forests you can read by their light it's incredible but if we program the light to blink at a certain rate you'll actually start attracting these fireflies to you and so one of our standard workshops we do is we build firefly costumes and we have the scientists or the kids or whoever whatever students are by um 
build these very simple firefly costumes and program them as like the male fireflies, the female fireflies. There's even predatory mimics um, that slightly mimic the flashings of these fireflies. What's really cool is once you start doing that and you go into the woods and with no other lights other than this little light that you can emit, you start really getting into the sensory world and you start becoming very, and this happens within like half an hour, um, which is always really incredible. Like you start thinking like a firefly and you'll start seeing a flash and you'll be like, oh no, wait, that's a different species. Um, or like, oh wait, that seems almost right. Or, oh, this firefly is coming towards me. Oh no, oh, that's my friend um, who has the flash. Oh no, now they're going up. Okay. Okay, I guess that was a firefly. And suddenly you start realizing how these types of communication work in a really thick, noisy environment and how useful something like this ability to shine flashing lights can be and why these fireflies perhaps evolve this way. Um, so you really start getting into like firefly mode in your brain. And I'm always just impressed with how quickly this kind of thing can happen when you're immersed in a really rich area and you've kind of programmed yourself to become a participant in the certain way of being. So this is a really different from the urban environment where I live, where at any moment you can hear bus, you know, traffic noises and horns going off. Uh, have you found that when you come out here, the way you think about physical computing, what you just expressed right now is kind of going beyond just the intake of physical computing, of making visible senses or phenomena out in the world that are beyond our senses and putting them within our sensory range. Mm -hmm. But you're also talking about the, uh, the pushing out part is where um, the way that we hone our perceptions mm -hmm. changes as we're in this environment. What has your experience been living next to the rainforest and doing this kind of work in this area? Is that question too far out there? Or? No. Okay. Um, and it's... It and we see this a lot with like you know the participants we had at our big conference here mm. if you're used to doing a certain type of physical computing physical programming or like physical manufacturing there's often a very particular way that things are done and you see you know you see the instructables do them this way or use this kind of material and all this kind of stuff and a lot of that immediately changes once you're out here a because there's 100% humidity all the time. Mm -hmm. And B, there's even a weird fungus in the air uh, that mixes with, also we get salt water from the nearby oceans. And Gamboa here was actually a place that the US military used for testing degradation of tech equipment. And then when they left Panama, they actually, they tried out other places. They couldn't get a place that they found where like just the ambient air would destroy electronics um, as quickly as possible. And so just like that aspect makes you think a little bit differently about like, oh, I saw this cool project someone did, but like, oh yeah, that's just gonna mold. Or like, that's not gonna withstand like five minutes out in the rainforest kind of thing. Mm. Um, and so it makes you think a bit differently about the materials and like uh, about like, okay, it's gonna corrode. Um, so and maybe I can prevent it, but how can I work with that? Or like, how can I make the things a little more robust and interactive with the elements in certain ways? And, and it also takes you a lot out of like the human kind of model of interaction. Whereas you see a lot of interaction design will be things that humans like to do. Like I'm going to press this button or I'm going to, you know, do this thing with my eye, uh, uh, and, you know, or, uh, you know, track it visually. But here it's like thick, wet, um, and not everything has very dexterous fingers for pressing buttons. And it makes you immediately think about, yeah, different ways 
for different kinds of interactions wherever I, you are. I've heard coders' frustrations when they go in to try to learn some physical creative computing and they get very frustrated. There's just too many variables of things that could go wrong because <laughs> now you're dealing with circuitry, but now you're talking about the actual environmental factors that would interfere with all those circuits going on at the same time. It's incredibly humbling um, because you get very grateful for even just like minor successes like, yay, this thing's still blinking. Um, or like, And it makes you really impressed by like what things will actually like you have a thing that keeps working after a month here um that's just like almost mind-blowing um it wasn't eaten by ants um it wasn't you know flushed away by a flood um it wasn't just rapidly rusted halfway or covered with mold um it really gives you a very low bar for what's considered a huge win it's very rewarding at the the same time so i think you gave us a little bit of your you know where you want to see the trajectory go as far as um the conceptual part of your lab i wonder if we could just do a very quick quick walkthrough of the physical spaces and you could talk sure. a little bit about like what's in action there totally here we are at the garage entrance there's a kayak hanging above my head and now we're staring into an open garage with what this looks a lot like itp makerspace <laughs> so uh, what do we have here um well so i would say almost behind you is one of our very important tools which is just our our truck uh, we have just a big four by four truck that we've used to rescue many scientists who've gotten stuck down in field plots because um, the Smithsonian's not super great about being responsive to their trapped individuals. So there'll be tree falls and things like that. And we've formed our own informal rescue service where someone will, you know, relay exactly. <laughs> and, you know, message us. We'll grab a bunch of saws from our shop that's right next to us here and just go down, saw them out, um, you know, get them out of the forest. And more importantly, what happens is sometimes they'll have specimens that are very time dependent. So you can't collect a sample or a creature and then just hang out for six hours during the middle of the day because this creature might need uh, some sugar water if it's like a bat or something because they can they can die pretty quickly or hummingbirds for instance um, so sometimes it's very time dependent they need to get in the jungle and then if a tree falls they need to get back out quite quickly um, even if they're not injured um, their animals or their specimens can get injured very quickly so our, our truck and then eventually we want to turn that into a real mobile kind of studio itself be able to program things right there. We have a couple of scientists here who are volunteering to help clean up the lab, but this is kind of our main physical workspace, manufacturing, laser cutters, dremels, saws, oscillating tools, um, all your big things for hacking apart large swaths of material, as well as doing lots of mold making. Uh, different kinds of modeling. Back here is kind of the wet room uh, where we do like mess with strange chemicals if you need to etch stuff, um, if you need to do vacuum degassing of your silicone molds. Um, over here is kind of the main kitchen area, which is a good hangout space that then transitions into uh, kind of crafting studio. It's where a lot of our textile material is as well as more like kind of traditional arts like paints and watercolors and acrylics, sewing machines and different uh, stuff like that. We build a lot of backpacks. Uh, that's one of our standard gears for interfacing with places you can only reach by foot. With my friend Hannah Perner Wilson makes these designs for mobile studio backpacks that will oh, wow. you can load up with all your Arduinos, have them organized, and then deploy them on a tree in the middle of the rainforest so then you can just be hacking and reprogramming stuff out there. And then we're in the main electronics room right now. This is 
our always hopefully going to be organized area, but it has the 3D printers. We have one of the 3D printers on loan to a neighbor uh, next door who's building experimental music instruments, and then the other is hanging out right now, uh, helping us build different housings and gears and models of creatures for making robotic versions of creatures for behavioral experiments. We have uh, just a simple drone next to a singing bowl. <laughs> yes, exactly. We got you know your classic drone board next to your uh, um, Nepali uh, singing bowl. <laughs> we have lots of our documentation equipment. That's a real key part around here, and something that we do. We'll do a lot of consulting with scientists, and one of the main like prices we make them pay for the consulting is that they need to document and publicly openly share how their research process works and whatever tools they're using so that other scientists can replicate these experiments, which is super important. And that's why we have a bunch of this, like, we'll have 360 cameras, just nice cameras and nice lenses, macro lenses, as well as drones and all kinds of stuff. I think one of our main goals is I just want people to have agency over their own tools. I think it's very harmful to any scientific process if the person doing the research isn't versed in how their tools work, how they actually function, how they can break, how they can be misleading, mm -hmm. um, and then also how they can fix them if they're broken or busted. And then even more importantly, perhaps, is how they could tweak them when their scientific question starts changing or evolving. Like suddenly, oh, it's not actually this aspect of the Agudi's behaviors that I'm worried about. It's this other one that's really fascinating, and I want to make this robotic Agudi that I have now uh, behave in a different way. And so how they can change these behavioral tools around, um, because I think a lot of people view the scientific process, oh, I have this certain research project, and then I finish it all the way through. But really, they keep changing and evolving as you go through these processes. But often the technology is the static part, and you end up kind of being stuck with, oh, I have a sensor that does this, I just have to keep sensing this, and I have to change my research about whatever this sensor did instead of tweaking it to what's the actual thing we want to learn about right here. Mm. Upstairs real quick. Oh, and over, over to the side, there's our long-term guest residency for scientists, artists, and tech people. That's usually people staying about six months or more. Uh -huh. And then, so then up here is our like art science gallery. We'll try to have regular events here where, especially we have a big scientific community around here, and trying to get them to place a lot of value on the different things they do. So we'll have like shows about like, what are the cool hacks that you have in your research, or what are um, some weird tools that you've made or used, or what are some beautiful photos that you've taken of your research subjects. Mm. And we'll have like a whole little gallery show. People hang out and admire each other's kinds of things and kind of give them credit for all this amazing work they're doing anyway. And they're used to only getting credit for the you know nature publication or whatever that comes out instead of all this other stuff that leads up to that publication and helps round it out a lot more. Oh, cool. So we try to have, yeah, dedicated kind of gallery space for that. Um, we have a short-term residency spot where um, artists, technologists, designers, um, scientists can come for just you know a couple days, a couple weeks or something like that and work out here at our little jungle field station. And then finally one of our prized rooms is the presentation porch slash yoga studio slash uh, movie night zone and yeah, screened in place for watching and admiring birds and agoutis. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right, well,
thanks for taking uh, me through the tour, but I, I love what you're doing out here. I think it's very cool. Awesome. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming out and visiting our, our fun little spot.